We are resuming, usually I say we're continuing the series, but uh, I think once I've been gone for a month, I'm not allowed to say continuing anymore. But we are resuming the series in Exodus, and uh, this morning we'll be looking at Exodus chapter 38. Our New Testament complementary passage are the first 11 verses of the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians. So if you would open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll be reading the verse 11 verses. And in honor of God's word, please stand. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, hear God's word. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Thus far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Exodus chapter 38 beginning in verse 1 and continuing in the reading of God's Word. This is speaking of Bezalel, uh, the craftsman, where we begin in 38.1. He made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length and five cubits its breadth. It was square and three cubits was its height. He made horns for it on its four corners. Its horns were of one piece with it and he overlaid it with bronze. And he made all the utensils of the altar, the pots, the shovels, the basins, the forks, and the firepans. He made all its utensils of bronze. And he made for the altar a grating, a network of bronze under its ledge extending halfway down. He cast four rings on the four corners of the bronze grating as holders for the poles. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. And he put the poles through the rings on the sides of the altar to carry it with them. He made it hollow with boards. He made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he made the court. For the south side, the hangings of the court were of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits. Their twenty pillars and their twenty bases were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the north side, there were hangings of a hundred cubits. Their twenty pillars, their twenty bases were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the west side were hangings of fifty cubits, their ten pillars and their ten bases. The hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the front to the east, fifty cubits. 
The hangings for one side of the gate were 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. And so for the other side, on both sides of the gate of the court were hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three bases. All the hangings around the court were of fine twined linen. And the bases for the pillars were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. The overlaying of their capitals also was of silver, and all the pillars of the court were filleted with silver. And the screen for the gate of the court was embroidered with needlework in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linens. It was 20 cubits long and 5 cubits in its breadth corresponding to the hangings of the court. And their pillars were four in number. Their four bases were of bronze, their hooks of silver, and the overlaying of their capitals and their fillets of silver. And all the pegs for the tabernacle and for the court all around were of bronze. These are the records of the tabernacle. The tabernacle of the testimony, as they were recorded at the commandment of Moses, the responsibility of the Levites under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the high priest. Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Ur of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord commanded Moses. And with him was Aholiab, the son of Ahisamath, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer and embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the gold that was used for the work and all the construction of the sanctuary, the gold from the offering was 29 talents and 730 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. The silver from those of the congregation who were recorded was a hundred talents and 1,775 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. A becca ahead, that is half a shekel by the shekel of the sanctuary, for everyone who was listed in the, re- in the records from 20 years old and upward for 603,550 men. The hundred talents of silver were for casting the bases of the sanctuary and the bases of the veil. A hundred talents, a hundred bases for the hundred talents, a talent a base. And of the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars and overlaid their capitals and made fillets for them. The bronze that was offered was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. With it, he made the bases for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the bronze altar and the bronze grating for it and all the utensils of the altar. The bases around the court, the bases of the gate of the court, all the pegs of the tabernacle, and all the pegs around the court. Thus far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, it would be easy to look at this laundry list and think this is as exciting as reading a telephone book. And yet you've given it to us for our instruction. So help us to come to it with eager and humble hearts. Speak, Lord, for your servants here. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So if you've been with us in this series, you've heard me ask the question many times, and that is, why is Moses going into all of this detail? Is he giving you and me instructions for how to do a DIY tabernacle? Clearly, We've got all the details. We can construct the perfect replica of the tabernacle from the detail lists that we find in Exodus. And yet we know that's not the reason. 
the tabernacle already existed by the time that these words were written. They were written to the children of Israel camped on the plains of Moab. They've already wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. The entire first generation has died off because of their disobedience in not going into the land when they should have. And now their children, grown and ready to go in and conquer Canaan, are receiving these words. They've been living with the tabernacle for their entire lives. They don't need instructions for how to build one. I want to ask a different question this morning. And if you've never asked this question, you will, if you are reading through our uh, Through the Bible in a Year daily Bible reading program, you're going to be asking yourself this question within the next two weeks. Because we're getting into this series, or this, this portion of the text, in Exodus. And here's the question. What is up with Moses and his repetitiveness? Why does Moses repeat himself? One of the commentators on this passage, literally, his comments are, see comments on chapters 25 to 27. Literally. Chapters 25 through 27 is this detailed instruction about how to build the Ark of the Covenant and the, the, the table of showbread and the lampstand and all this stuff, very detailed. This is what you shall do. And now we're picking up with the exact same detail. This is what Bezalel did. And literally, it's word for word cut and paste. There are just one or two details, one or two phrases that you're going to find a little bit different here than back there. But it's cut and paste, essentially. So why? What on earth for? Well, I want you to place yourself not just in the minds of the original hearers, not just in the shoes of the original hearers, but I want you to place yourself in the shoes of every child of God who has ever sat under the reading of God's Word. Week after week, year after year, 1,400 years B.C., these children getting ready to go in and conquer Canaan, these children worshiping in the synagogue every Sabbath day, these children plowing their fields, being worried about their neighbors, these young men and women dealing with Roman occupation, these people that are dealing with life. The brokenness, the sin, the pain, the wilderness journey. We know that these portions were read, that these scriptures were read in portions throughout the entire history of God's people. And just like you are encountering this text this morning, there's an awful lot of life that has passed under the bridge since the last time you encountered this scene. 
Now, for our congregation, it's been at least a month since I preached from Exodus 37. But think all the way back to Exodus chapter 25 and 26, which are the parallel of this passage. When did you hear that series of sermons? Months ago. What all has passed through your life in those intervening months? You see, the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies, the furniture and the gold, are all a picture to us of Eden. This place of perfect harmony with God. This place where the world outside may be threatening and chaotic and dark and dangerous, but here, here there is a mercy seat covered in gold with cherubim eternally gazing upon that mercy in silent wonder. Here there's a place of bread. Twelve loaves replaced every week so that it always smells like fresh bread. This place of communion between God and the twelve tribes of Israel. Here there is a lamp with its light always lit, casting its shadow over, or casting its light rather, over that table and that meal that is set out, symbolizing that Israel's God never slumbers. Israel's God never sleeps. And it's all drenched in gold. So the child of God, stumbling into the synagogue, stumbling into the temple, stumbling into the tabernacle courtyard, stumbling into the worship service on a Sunday morning. Broken, battered, weary, from the sin outside and the sin within. The child of God gets this vision and does not ever say, good grief, Moses, you already told me about this. The child of God says, tell me again. Tell me again, because I've forgotten. Tell me because I've neglected. Tell me because the hurt, the betrayal, some of it from outside, but all too often most of it coming from me. The betrayal of God. The betrayal of my sin. The betrayal of who God says that you are and who you are called to be. The way that I have spoken to those closest to me in words that I would never dream of using to the random stranger that I'm trying to make a good impression on. The way that I have behaved, I can't see it anymore. I can't see this vision. I can't see this place of gold and mercy and light and nourishment and fellowship and protection and comfort and presence. I can't see it. It's grown dim. Moses, tell me again. And so he does. He tells us in two ways that we'll look at this morning. First, he gives us this picture of Eden. And then secondly, we will see the response. The picture of Eden 
that the children of Israel are given again and again and again and again. As they hear these words written in portions over the course of their weeks. As they come again into the sanctuary and hear God say, listen, here's what's at the heart of it. Here is what Eden looks like. Meredith and I, over the past few weeks, did a 10-day tour of Egypt. And we saw Egypt literally from top to bottom. Our tour guide, delightful people, seemed to have one agenda, and that was to make sure that in that 10-day period, we did not miss a single solitary interesting thing. We were so done with it, the last day, (laughs) we just said, you know what, let's cancel the rest of the stuff. We are worn out. But something that unites everything that we saw from Abu Simbel all the way down to the city of Alexandria, pyramids, tombs, mummies, and treasures, we saw a lot of them. And one thing that they all have in common is that each pyramid, each tomb, all the treasures of King Tut laid out, all those mummies, we saw a lot of them, they were all examples of some one person trying to build a glory house for themselves. We just see the faded remnants of it. And, and some, of the, some of the faded remnants are stunning. We went to the Valley of the Kings, where these kings have built their tombs, still discovering new tombs to this day. And, and you could see some of the vivid colors that are there on the walls some three, 4,000 years after these tombs were first decorated and sealed. And you can just tell that you're walking into something that was magnificent. The gold. Think of King Tut's treasure. Now think of all that stuff in a tomb with the walls painted, with baskets of food and wine. They were building for themselves glory houses. A glorious afterlife. An afterlife filled with riches and food and wine and servants. I noted to Meredith that it would kind of stink if you were the great Pharaoh and here you are in 2023, your tomb has been robbed, all the stuff has been chiseled away, all the statues are off in Europe somewhere, and you're laying in a glass box in a museum in Cairo with a million tourists pressing their dirty noses up against the side of your glass box and going, who was that again? Thutmose or Tutankhamun or Hatshepsut or whatever mummy this is. Huh. Next, please. (laughs) It's a bit of a downer. Considering what all of this was supposed to be preparing. Now, think again of our text. 
Think again of the way that Moses closed it. All those talents and all of that stuff. 2,700 pounds of gold. 7,500 pounds of silver. Built during the time of the Egyptian pharaohs. This is a glory house. Just as each one of those tombs, just as each one of those pyramids, this is a glory house. The children of Israel are building exactly what we saw the remnants of. A glory house. The difference is, every one of those glory houses are to a dead God. A dead Pharaoh. The incarnation of the God Ra, who's had just been literally eviscerated. His organs are in jars. And the one thing that they thought was absolutely useless was his brain which has been scooped out and gotten rid of. Which means now we've got a lot of reincarnated pharaohs that are going, dang, that's what I needed that for. All these glory houses to dead people. And the children of Israel build a glory house to the living God. They knew exactly what they were doing. They knew exactly what was being set up here. This is the contrast between death and life. This is the contrast between building a name for myself that will last for all eternity and not a glory house for Moses. We don't even know where he was buried. Not a glory house for their great deliverer. Not a glory house for their great captain of their host, Joshua. Not a glory house for their great king of Israel, David. But a glory house for the living God. The God that they could come back to week after week again and again. This king. This glory house. The original hearers of this text, along with every saint through the ages down to you and me today, have encountered this text, encountered these words, encountered this vision at different stages in their own journey. And again and again, our response is the same. Tell me of this mercy seat. Tell me of this place. Tell me what God has accomplished. Tell me this sacrificial system, this thing that stands between the child, the, the, the children of Israel and this vision of Eden, this holy place. To get there, you've got to come through the entire sacrificial system. Tell me again how Jesus Christ has become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Tell me again, I need to hear it. 
Tell me again that Jesus has taken my sin. Tell me again that I have peace with God. Tell me again that I'm here in this place of mercy and grace. Here in this place of fellowship and communion. Tell me that I'm here again in this place of light, safety, comfort, and presence. Tell me again. God's glory house became perverted. The Ark of the Covenant became a, a talisman that the children of Israel took to defeat the Canaanites, and it got captured. Later, this glory house, 2,200 pounds of gold, all the silver, later this glory house becomes something that Hezekiah wants to show off to the emissary of Babylon to show, hey, (laughs) we got stuff too. I mean, you Babylonians, you're the new and upcoming big kid on the street. But come, let me show you what we've got been around here for hundreds of years. And he showed him all the treasures of his house. That wasn't the purpose. That wasn't why God did this. That wasn't why the people gave for it. The purpose of the glory house of God from the absolute first day all the way to the last has been a pale reflection of what true glory is. A dim light that shows through signs and symbols how precious mercy is, how precious communion with God is, how precious it is to know that He always watches. You know, Jesus, when He fed the 5,000, He took the loaves and fishes, and he passed them out. And the the verse says in Mark chapter 6, it says that when they had all eaten and were satisfied, they took up 12 baskets full of the leftovers. I believe that Jesus and Mark, in, in recording it that way, shows us exactly, goes all the way back, Not just 12 loaves of bread to symbolize communion with God. Not just 12 things being refreshed once a week, but 12 baskets that are left over from our communion with God. That's what Jesus Christ has brought to us. Beloved, that vision of Eden, that vision of Eden, should fill you and me with wonder, with joy. It should be an oasis, an encouragement. It should be refreshing as we walk into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, etc. Walking into it saying, you know what? I'm coming here from an Eden perspective. Christ has accomplished this peace. He Himself is our peace. Who has reconciled us to God and reconciled us to our fellow man. There is no Jew, there is no Gentile, there is no bond, there is no free, there is no male, there is no female. We are one in Christ. 
And He has accomplished this thing. So I'm going to walk out into a world. I'm going to walk out into a place that fills me with doubt, that attacks me, that challenges me, that wants me to push back at it. I'm going to walk into this place that says a real man never backs down. And I'm going to walk into it with the mind of Christ. I'm going to take Eden into my week. Because God has accomplished it. And that is what our response should be. So as we shift quickly to the second portion, what is the response? The response to this vision of Eden, the response to this promise that we will be restored through God's mercy to fellowship, to the knowledge of His presence, to His, His, His being with us. What is the response? We killed Him. We hated Him. In the space of one week, your words turned. From Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to give me Barabbas, give me anybody, but kill him. One week. One week. We went from palm fronds cast on the ground before him as he entered Jerusalem to do anything but kill this man. And beloved... And, and this is, frankly, part of the problem of the Christian church over the first 14, 1500 years of her existence, is there were far too many people who said, yeah, that was the Jews. Wasn't me. Uh, that was the Jews. Beloved, do not think for one hot second that you were not there. That you did not nail him to the tree, that you did not delight in his death. Do not think for one second that you were not there. One of my favorite artists is Rembrandt, and one of he's known for painting himself into a bunch of his pictures, and one of the pictures is the raising of the cross. And it's a bunch of people, the cross is at about a 45 degree angle and you can see this pierced Christ bleeding and in agony and a bunch of people putting their shoulders into it and straining with all their muscles to shove that thing upright, that final thud back down into the hole, that jolt as his body comes down upon those cruel nails. And Rembrandt himself is one of the people pushing that cross up. He understood. It was your sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Not just beautiful words that we sing, but a reality that you and I nailed him joyfully and eagerly. And you know how I can say joyfully and eagerly? Because what's your attitude towards whatever pet sin or sins you have? Are you reluctant to give it up? The censorious tongue. The 
argumentative nature. The bitterness and cynicism. The narcissism. All of the ways that we live out the poison that sin is. The self-indulgence. How often will you look at reading your scriptures as a duty rather than a refreshing, needed, quenching of that thirst that only God can provide? Beloved, it's your heart and it's my heart that causes Jesus Christ to become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And once you see yourself there, once you acknowledge that you are there, the purpose of this is not to beat you over the head. The purpose of this is not self-flagellation. The purpose is to wonder personally and afresh at the glory of mercy and grace. You must see that you cried, crucify him. Because then you can see when he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, he's speaking to you. He's speaking those words directly to the sin-crushed penitent. The one who understands their need can truly cling with all that they are to the only one who could supply that need. That's why Moses repeats himself. It's why God repeats passages. The other final thing I just want to point out very briefly. You notice in verse 8. He made the bronze basin from the mirrors that the ladies donated. One of the things in Egypt that Meredith and I noted was they expected family life to continue. So there's food and there's animals and there's all the stuff. The ladies really were into their beauty products. Egyptian women, at least those who were wealthy enough to have fancy tombs, they had combs and they had little tweezer things and they had makeup things and they had lots of mirrors. Mirrors so that they could check their hair. Mirrors so that they could check their face. Make sure that the eyeliner was laying on just right. And those mirrors were polished. We saw a lot of mirrors. They're all dulled with age. They don't reflect a thing anymore. But I think you would be forgiven if you were a lady with your own bronze mirror. And they're coming around to take up a collection And as you're looking at all your things, what can I contribute? 
and you picked up your mirror, you can't run down to the local 7-Eleven in the wilderness and buy a new one. You're looking at giving away this thing that kind of is an essential part of your beauty regimen. I think you would be forgiven if you might say, hey, I'll hang on to this one. You can have the bronze buckles that are tying the suitcases together. You can have the bronze buckles on the kids' shoes or sandals or whatever it was. But, but I kind of need this. And our text says it's specifically these things that were transformed by God into this bronze basin in which the priest would wash himself to symbolize his, his need for cleansing. But also, if we're, again, looking at this from a 10,000-foot perspective, you've been marching all day long, you've put up this massive structure yet again, you're pretty hot and tired by the time you get to doing your work as a priest. I'm guessing a nice big bronze basin filled with water that you're splashing over your head and your arms and your feet feels really refreshing. This place, not only that shows that I need cleansing, but this place that really refreshes when I'm cleansed, is made up of all of these women's one essential piece of their beauty regimen. And Moses takes a point, I mean, take, takes the time to point that out to us. It's, it, you can skim over it real quickly, but... I mentioned there are some differences in the, in the repetitions, and this is one of them. Now, I don't want to go all allegorical and stuff, but I do think at the very least we could all agree that what these women are doing is they're saying, take something that's mine. Take something that I use. Take something that's important to me. Take something, I don't want to go too far with it, but take something that's really, really precious. Take something I'm really going to miss not having. Next 40 years, I'm going to be going, ooh, how's my hair look? <laughs> take something that I really use and enjoy and like, and God, do with it what you will. Make of it what you will. I think that maybe that's how you should respond. I think maybe that's how I should respond. If I get this vision of Eden, of what God has done for me, if I get that vision, will I not be more naturally inclined to say, God, take my singleness and do with it what you will. Take my marriage. Transform me through it. Take my children. Transform me into your image through that. Take my work. Take my hobbies. Take my entertainments. Take my fears. Take my aspirations. Take everything. Make it into a bronze basin, if that's what your will is. But Lord, take my life. 
Beloved, he demands it. He demands it. He says, don't you think for a moment I came to bring peace? (laughs) Uh Uh-uh. I came to divide husband from father, wife from husband, husband from wife, wife from husband, son from father and mother, daughter from father and mother, parents from their children. I demand all of it. I demand nothing be held back. I want a medal in your marriage. I want a medal in your education. I want a medal in how much you drink. I want a medal in how much you eat. I want a medal in how much you exercise. I'm going to medal in it all. I'm going to medal with what you put on. I'm going to medal in every aspect of your life. Because the moment I find something that you're going to say, "Eh, yeah, but not this one. That's the one I'm going after most passionately and strongly. But beloved, when you and I open ourselves in full surrender, when you say, my heart promptly and sincerely I give to you, my life, my everything is yours, he will take that, painfully transform you, Paul will say, like burning away wood and hay and stubble. But oh, beloved, what's left over will be a life that is living in harmony with Eden. A life that is living out of this picture. A life that is at peace with God. That's at peace with one another. That is remarkably and delightfully attractive to those who know nothing of this grace and mercy. Father, would you help us go forth from this place refreshed, lifting up weary heads, strengthening the arms that are weak and the feet that go slowly, strengthening them in your power and in a greater appreciation wonderment for what you have done. You have restored Eden. Help us, Father, to take that peace and communion and presence into every relationship that we have this coming week. In Christ's name, amen.